0: an excellent job of choosing music that exalts Christ. And if you pay attention, most of the music we sing, actually I'm going to correct that, all of the music we sing is what Christ has done for us or how magnificent God is for us. A lot of songs that are written today are about what we will do for God. And uh, I will tell you, everything you do for God has failed. So I don't really want to hear about what you're going to do for God. And I don't want to sing about what I'm going to do for God. I want to know what he's done for me. And it's Wonderful to be reminded that in, in music. Well, Let's pray and we will continue this morning. Father, we are in great and desperate need to be reminded of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ this morning. We have failed, we have stumbled, we have sinned, and all of it's been a great offense to your glory and to your name and to your holiness. But we rest under the umbrella of Christ Jesus. All of our sins have been washed away, our righteousness is in Christ, and now we come to celebrate And to be reminded of that. And most importantly, have our faith strengthened in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was a pleasure to only have to drive... Sorry, Michael and Stephen. It was a pleasure to only have to drive 15 minutes this morning. Uh, to church. My wife and I are very excited about being closer to this community. That being said, starting in February, we're going to be uh, kicking back off the men's and women's Bible studies. And we have some other stuff that we're excited about. So I know there's some women's uh, events and some breakfasts coming for the ladies and for the men. So uh, stay tuned for that. But I'm really excited about reaching out to this community even more and trying to bring people into the message of Jesus Christ. As I was driving here, I was just floored by all the construction. There's a lot of people moving here, and there's a lot going on, and so it's it 's encouraging. Um, I also passed a lot of churches, and uh, the thing I kept reminding myself is there is a lot of people who live down here and probably not even near enough churches with all the churches that are here, we still need more people preaching christ so let 's just remind ourselves of that so this morning is is what I would say a transition sermon from John nine and ten over into the series that we 're going to do on the church starting next week, and what I wanted to do was really take the point that John is making in his gospel and help us understand the the practical application of that as it relates to the church. Sometimes it's hard to take a narrative and understand what's going on in a narrative, especially when it comes to things like the Old Testament, and know what to do with them. And typically what we do with them is try and find daily application of be like this person, which I think we miss, which is part of our core, we miss the broader application, which is faith Uh, in the finished work of God, in the finished work of Christ. So in John 9 and 10, for those of you that may have missed a couple sermons here and there, uh, because of the holidays, John 9 and 10 is one long story that has one major point in it, and that point is no one in their own righteousness, in their own wisdom, in their own abilities comes to Jesus Christ to faith. No one has that capacity. So the hope that we have that rests In our goodness between God. So God's love for us, our right standing, we will not be judged. We will not find ourselves being in the condemnation of God rests within the precious work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit who transforms us. So John wants us with this information to believe that Jesus is the perfect Savior he sets this up in John 9, and then later on in John 10, he wants us to believe that he's the perfect sustainer. I am the Good Shepherd, the whole Good Shepherd discourse. This whole, the protection of the sheep, those who will not go without the fold. He's not going to lose none. How you get in and how you stay in is all through the power of Jesus. So he's a perfect savior. He's a perfect sustainer. And the whole conclusion of this, if we go to John 15 when he reminds us, I'm sorry, John 22, when he reminds us of why he wrote the letter, is that he's the perfect hope for life. Now we hear this and we all nod our heads yes. Jesus is the perfect hope for life. We need nothing else. And I guarantee you no one in this room would disagree with that statement. But when you walk out the back doors and you get in your car and turn the key on and the radio pops on, it seems as if everything else that's being communicated to us is the exact opposite. Jesus is enough for my religious side, but everything else in life, he can't sustain me there. He's not enough for life. We say it in theory, but it's very hard in the everyday Life And the reason I can be so dogmatic about that is that I'm talking about me. And I know if I struggle with this, I'm assuming the rest of humanity is struggling with the concept that Jesus is enough for not only salvation, but for life. So this morning, as we transition through the, the emphasis that we have at community here, is... Resting in the perfect worth of Christ. Another way that we say this is we want to focus in on our faith and not our faithfulness. Faithfulness is important, but it's always preceding, or it's done before do, is another way to say. We have to focus on what has been done for us to keep us motivated, to keep us focused for doing things for the right reasons. So there is, it's, not, it's not either you focus in on Christ or you focus in on obedience. It can't be either or. So to bring clarity here, a lot of messages that are out there for the world as it relates to Christianity is what you must do. And it's built on a foundation of the gospel gets you in and now you must focus on what you must be doing. As we've said here, the gospel is not just a clean slate. I mean, there's really... Three ways in which you can view the gospel. We've mentioned this before, so this is a little bit of a review. But some people, it's a clean slate. So I said the prayer, or I believe in the gospels. Now he has made me justified. I'm clean. I'm, I'm cured. And now, it's my, now I have to do my part, which is obedience, discipline myself, and perform well until he comes back. So it's me sanctifying myself to the point I'm waiting for glorification. And then there's the adoption. Yes, I've been adopted, but now I have to prove I deserve the adoption, right? So you can claim salvation by faith alone, but if you want to keep this or be assured of this uh, salvation, you need to produce certain amounts of fruit. And then you have what I would say the third point, which is where I find myself, and that's the beggar. So clean slate, adopted, and beggar. And the beggar has nothing to offer, right? When someone has their hand out, what do they receive? And even, I mean, I know we do a lot here in Nashville and we try and help people and they're selling papers, but even in the selling of the paper that, these, that is produced for them, they're still asking for a handout. They didn't, they didn't write that. They didn't produce it. When you see a beggar, the beggar has nothing to offer you. We have nothing to offer God. We are coming, requesting everything from God and everything As it relates to our standing and our righteousness, but also as it relates to life. Including your health, your breath, your job, everything is resting on Christ. And I want to go back to this again, because I know that there's this tension in our heart, but what about the law? What about obedience? What about if we don't obey, can we truly have assurance And this is where I want us to focus in our time this morning. If we don't get this section right, and we don't understand the role of the spirit, the role of preaching, the role of the church, and our position as beggars, then we won't understand what the purpose of the church is for, okay? So this is kind of the introductory to our series, a bridge between John 9 and 10. We have absolutely nothing we can offer to God. We have nothing that we can do in salvation. We don't bring ourselves to Christ and our role in the church in relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, no, my, my children, they're, they have responsibilities. They have things that they must do. They have, we have rules. In other words, how they speak to each other, how they speak to me. Uh, when they go to bed, uh, especially the boys, they have to take baths, right? They have to take showers. We don't want stinky boys running through the house. But they, there's, there's an, there, there is never a moment that I say, unless you perform in this way, unless you obey to this level, then my love for you, my care for you, and grace that's given to you is going to start going down. My children do not equate obedience with love. Now, I'm not a perfect father. Could could I possibly communicate that to them? Of course. But the greatest hope and joy that we have is that that is never communicated to the believer. Go back and read John 9 and 10. The security of you being adopted into the family was a decision made by the father... And given to you as a gift. And the Holy Spirit comes in and regenerates you and brings you to life. And Jesus says, all that's been given to me, I will lose none. And they can't take them out of my hand. And the Father who is greater than me cannot take them out of his hand. So you have full security. He does not say, unless you do this, then you can be taken out. Or unless you pull yourself out. There is the reverse psychology. Nobody can take you out, but you can take yourself out. Right? So then the fear becomes perform well, or you can take yourself out of the Father's hand. But I'm pretty sure Jesus communicated with great intensity that if this gift has been given to them, it doesn't matter what you do, you're not going to be lost to him. But we also have lost sight of the power of the Spirit. And now, there's been a, there's a tendency within Christianity, and there's a tendency within humanity when you see something that's gone the wrong direction to swing back to the other side too far, right? So for instance, someone who grows up in law, like I did, can swing too far and come over here and say, well, it's all grace and law is bad. Well, we have a problem with that because David says, I love thy law. And to hate something that reflects the holiness of God is confusing because the law shows us just how holy God is and how righteous he is. So the law can't be bad, right? So there, you have to, we have to be careful in that pendulum swing. But what the law should never do is give you comfort because the law requires perfection, absolute perfection. So the law reflects the holiness of God. It gives us a clear sight of what God is like. But if you ever try and put yourself up underneath the law, that's the danger. So making sure that we're not swinging too far. But the other place that we can find ourselves... Swinging too far as it relates to the work of the Spirit. Now there is the charismatic movement that's out there, and there's a lot of books and there's a lot of conferences that are out there that are against the charismatic movement, and I think it is confusing and 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 it's dangerous. But what has happened in Baptist and Bible churches, like our church, is founded on a Bible church, is that we have swung so far that even mentioning the work of the Spirit is dangerous. Well, you know, you have to be careful, John, because you're gonna, you know, we're not charismatics. We, 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 we do not believe that those gifts are still for today. And so the Spirit's presence and power is squashed altogether. We've gone too far. There is a moment as a, as a preacher when I'm dealing with you. I rest so much on the work of the Spirit because I know how sinful, how ignorant I really am. And that there's this moment where if the Bible says that the preaching of of the word of God will not return void and the emphasis of the word of God is Christ and my emphasis in preaching is Christ, there's a moment I have to trust that the spirit's going to do what he says he's going to do. So whether I yell and stomp my feet or whether I'm as mundane as possibly I could be, the word of God is not going to return void. And Paul talks, we're going to get into this here in a little bit, but Paul mentions this, is that, look, I didn't come to you in lofty speech because I want you to be enamored with what I am. I need you to be in love with what Christ is, no matter how it's presented to you. And people who are hungry for Christ not to be entertained, not to have um, a better instructions of how to do something. I, I love instructions. As a matter of fact, my shower wasn't working last night. You know, first world problems. I couldn't get enough hot water so you know what I did? I went and found instructions on how to get better hot water, and within 30 seconds, I fixed it and had a hot shower this morning. I was very happy about that. I like instructions. I like to be more handy around the house, right? There's nothing wrong, but if you, if you, if you confuse that with, this is what makes me a better Christian, this is what makes me better in the eyes of God, that is dangerous, and I'll be the first to say, when I go to, I am, I'm a YouTube junkie when it comes to fixing houses. If the YouTube channel, I'm going to go to the one who's got the best instructions, right? He's got the most tools. He's got the best writings. I'm going for because I want to make sure the shower is working well. Well, a lot of times that's how we feel about Christianity. I want the best presentation. I want the best to-do list. And it needs to be all correlated with it. All starts with C's, right? That teaching is what's going to help me. And the confusion in that is that that is not the teaching that we need. So, this morning, I—the goal of all of this introduction—is to help us understand that our assurance must rest within Christ, the finished work of Christ, and from there, all the instructions to the church then make sense. Because if we don't rest in the perfect work of Christ, we are going to begin to rest in our imperfect work, and the church just becomes clustered and it becomes confusing and not helpful. So in order for you to rest in something, first you have to understand your need for it. My kids and I recently watched uh, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I haven't seen that movie in forever. And you just forget how old the 80s are. But uh, as it relates to movies, as it relates to movies. Um, but in there, at the, at the end of the movie, if you haven't seen it, there, there's uh, this moment where they open up the Ark of the Covenant and they look into the Ark and... The instructions from Indiana Jones is close your eyes, don't look. Right? And there's a lot of theological problems with that. But the one thing that just dawned on me, and, and as I was watching this, it reminded me that what this movie is portraying is that God is definitely beyond our comprehension and his power is way beyond us and understanding and controlling it. And there was there was a moment that the, the, what the ark brought for the people of Israel was that they had the moment, they, if they had the ark and they obeyed the commands of God, there was like they could defeat anyone. They, they had complete power when it rested with God. And one of the instructions was don't touch the ark. Don't touch it. And of course, we know the Old Testament story. The ark tips, one of the priests touches the ark right, and what happens to him? He instantly dies. So you're thinking in your mind, he doesn't want it to hit the ground, doesn't want it to fall, doesn't want it to break. He's not doing something. Sinful. He's not trying to rebel against God to gain some kind of joy or earthly status. In his mind, he's helping God and he dies. It's a fascinating story. In that story comes to life the absolute holiness and power of God. And often what we lose sight of is that you before God... It doesn't matter your intentions. It doesn't matter how good hearted you might be. He requires absolute perfection. Absolute perfection. This is where the law takes the holiness of God and it places it where it needs to be. The moment you relativize the law and you bring it down to where it can be somewhat achievable, for instance, all of you lie, but you would not admit to that. Every single one of you have lied at some level, and it's sometimes not even intentionally, right? Well, how much did that cost? Oh, it's 30 bucks. Actually, it was $31.99, right? Did you intentionally lie? No, but you lied. There's a, there's a side of it where that would be a violation of the law. Whether your intention of your heart was to lie or not, it requires perfection, absolute perfection. So what we do to the standard of holiness and to the standard of God is we lower it so we can feel as if we can achieve it. What the law should do is absolutely crush you under the weight of it. Because it's not mostly good, it's not somewhat good, it's perfection. And in our minds, we are so unholy, we can't understand how God would kill a man that touched an ark, that touched some gold. Like our brains cannot compute that but that is an illustration of without the grace and the mercy of God through Jesus Christ, you and I would not. I mean, let's just think about history. How many men and women have done horrendous things in this world? Horrendous things. And they lived to be old, and they didn't die because of it. And you have a man who's dedicated his life to God. And t- are you guys, You're feeling this? There's a moment where you should be feeling yourself standing before God completely naked and in utter danger, utter danger with nothing to protect you and nothing to offer and only condemnation standing before you. It's at that moment, do you know what you want? You want to be rescued. You want to be protected. And you hear the, the herald of a messenger saying, don't worry, Jesus will stand before you and he will fix that. The only thing you are required to do is just believe that he can do that. So the holiness of God must be raised. So I I love the law because the law reminds me of how much I truly need Jesus. Without the law, I'm not really seeing myself in need. Now, I think need is a very relative word. (laughs) So I'm I'm a new homeowner. Unfortunately, the home is not new. It's new to me. Therefore, I have a lot of needs. My wife and I are making our needs list. And I started chuckling because in my mind I'm thinking the house functions. And it all works. And, but it's relative to what a standard that I want to be at. Right? I want things to be at a certain level. So I need this kind of whatever. right? Car, bathroom, paint. When it comes to your spiritual life, when you say, I need this. So that I can have a better life. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with thinking. To live life in a way that it's resting in Christ is wonderful. But what ends up happening is. I need this because I think God requires this of me. The requirements get out of whack. Your needs get out of whack. And what you desire and what you need. As a diet. Spiritually speaking. Then changes. So we come thinking we need something. Because we're trying to meet this requirement. But. But what we're, what we're missing is, is that need that we have is completely blind from what we truly need. So please turn with me to... Uh, I was going to read to you some passages. Well, we'll look at them right now. So turn with me to Acts chapter 5. I'm going to read to you just a couple of passages of the new, of the new Jerusalem church. So the day of Pentecost, all of these people are saved. The church is now exploding. And the argument could be, and it's hard, you don't ever want to create, um, create doctrine and practice from Acts, because there's all kinds of things that happened in Acts that were different than they are now. But I think the attitude is helpful. So in Acts chapter 5 and verse 42, this kind of, start well actually it can start in chapter 2, but for the sake of time we're going to look at a couple of these. You have these new believers And they're excited about the fact that Jesus really is the Christ. So Acts is right after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The apostles are now empowered by the Spirit. They have all of this um, confidence, which is not their own, because what kind of confidence did they have when Jesus was on the cross? None, right? And all of a sudden, they have all this confidence. Where did it come from? It came from the work of the Spirit. And this is why Jesus says, listen, you want me to go because the the spirit will come and he will empower you to do things that you could not do on your own. So they take this message and what is it that they get excited about? They get excited about not how the gospel gets us in and now we must do more so we can build this kingdom. They get excited about one thing and that is the message of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 42. And every day and in temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. That was their focus and attention. Why? Because they knew the world needed to know who Jesus Christ is. So these are people who lived under the law. And eventually this ministry is going to shift to the or sorry, to the um, Gentiles. And when they switch to the Gentiles, we'll see how Paul approaches that as well. Turn to chapter 8 and look at verse 4 and 5. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So now the church is going out. This is under Paul, or Saul, he's ravaging the church at the moment. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. Right? There's constantly, Christ is the message, the focal point, calling them to a faith in Christ. And look at John, I'm sorry, Acts 9, verse 22. So now Saul is saved, you have the conversion of Saul. But Saul increased all the more in strength and and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So from the early moments, you have this emphasis on Christ. It makes sense. Those are Jews under the law, waiting for the Messiah. Now the Messiah has come. All right, now that makes sense, right? The early church is going to focus on the ministry of Christ, preaching Christ. Well, as it continues to go on, you hear that this message does not go away. For instance, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And look at verses 1 through 5. And just before I read this to you, so Paul is writing. So remember, this is a letter he had to sit down and write. And when you write someone, you typically have that person in mind when you're writing. You don't just write... I don't know if anybody writes a generic letter to nobody... So he's writing to a church. This happens to be a church. He never says they're not believers. Now, Corinthians have a lot of problems, but he never calls them unbelievers. In the midst of all of their problems, he still thinks that they are believers. And this is what he says to them. And and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimonies of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, all of the preaching that surrounds the history of America for the last hundred years, it would be hard to... Uh, compress all of those sermons into saying that's the wisdom of men. But what I will say is this. If a conclusion of a sermon does not have you resting your hope in Christ, but has you resting your hope in a way to live better or to perform better, that's not the conclusion of the Bible. Therefore, that becomes the wisdom of men. This is how I think you can be better. And so Paul says, I am not concerned with giving you my wisdom. Even if it relates to Christianity, I want you to rest in Christ, and that your faith may remain in Christ. Now, one more passage. Turn with me to Ephesians. This is the passage that Anthony read. Ephesians chapter three, and let's read three through, or seven through thirteen. It says, of, the go- of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the work of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach the Gentiles to the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's, uh, it's um, breathtaking to me to think that Paul considers himself to be the least, and yet has the most impact on Christianity from how much he wrote. So there's a moment where you have to step back and say if Paul accomplished all of this for Christ and he considers himself to be the least, our needs, we might need to reconsider what we need. Because Paul is about to tell us what he needs. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery of hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So Paul is saying the message of Jesus Christ, which has been given to the church, and the purpose of the church is to proclaim this everywhere, including high officials, including the government, is to go out from us, our purpose, message of the Christ out to the world around us. So the emphasis is on Christ and the preaching of Christ. Now listen, that doesn't mean we shouldn't care for widows, we shouldn't care for the orphans, we shouldn't care for the needy. All of that is encapsulated and is necessary, but it's not the mission and it's not the focus and it's not their need. Right? I was listening to the radio yesterday and this particular organization has has given over $3 million dollars, to um, helping people who are hungry. And I was like, man, that's fascinating. That's really cool. One guy who was able to raise that kind of money. I was, man, that's really neat. And it's needed. But in the end, if they never hear Christ, they, you didn't really offer them anything. Because the real need, remember, going back to what is it that I need? What they really need is Christ and the message of Christ. Now, I, I believe that Every person sitting here has a desire to enjoy Jesus Christ, to be transformed into his image. I don't know about you, but I hate sinning. It's damaging to me, it's damaging to my family, it's damaging to my community, and it's damaging to the people that I live around. But more importantly, it's damaging to the glory of God. I hate sinning. I absolutely hate it. So if I could live a perfect holy life, if there was a way to do that, take this pill, do this thing, I would absolutely do it. But I know for the rest of my life, I will struggle with sin. I will fight with sin. This is Paul saying that I beat my body daily. I struggle. I fight. But where is it that Paul finds the rest that he must have in order to deal with this pain? It's in Christ. It's always in Christ. And he says that the way in which we must become perfect in Christ or complete in Christ... It's very fascinating. So one last verse. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to just look at one verse. Paul writing to the church. His desire is that everyone in the church become complete in Christ, finished in Christ. Where they are the, the image bearers of Christ. He says, how is, this, how is this done? Verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So the proclamation we proclaim, we proclaim what? Him, Jesus Christ is the one that we constantly preach, so that the work of Christ is what causes you to be transformed into Christ. First John says this as well. That what? Or sorry, uh, later on in Ephesians it says this that when we preach Christ, the pure message of Christ, it's what transforms us into the image of Christ day after day. So the need that we have is not to perform more or to perform better. The need that we have is to rest more and to have a greater faith in Jesus Christ. The focus becomes the message of Jesus Christ. The reason why I must emphasize this and the reason why that I bring this out is that if we get into a series on the church and this is lost, then the purpose of the church is lost. What are we doing here as a church in, in, in South, I don't know, what are we? South of Nashville. What are we doing? What are we trying to accomplish? Do we want to become the next big thing? Do we want to become the next big attraction? Do we want people to feel better? Do we want to help their families? Do we want them to stop sinning? You can say yes to all of that. I have no problems with all of that. But the need... That becomes their greatest need. That is not your greatest need. The greatest need that you have is that when you stand before a holy God and he rightfully condemns you, the greatest need you have at that moment is a representative to stand before you and to protect you. And from that, we rest. And when we rest, now we can live. Because you're not trying to earn. You're not trying to produce. You just become what you are. And that is the child of God. The emphasis of our preaching, the emphasis of our studies, the emphasis of our ministries will always be Jesus Christ. And the conclusion will always be Jesus Christ because I believe and the elders believe at the church it's the greatest need that we have. It must be the focus and it must be our attention. Now, concluding back in John 9 and John 10. Up to this point in John 9 and John... Up to this point in John 10... You have Jesus Christ walking with sinners, constantly showing them how sick and depraved they truly are. And I want to clarify, remember earlier when I said Bible or Mexican food? The word depraved is an interesting concept. Some people struggle with it. Uh, When there's a doctrine within the Reformed theology, within the Reformed history... That came out during the Reformation and it helped clarify the gospel. Because if you don't understand your sickness or your state, you cannot understand what it is that you need. Again, we come to church because we need something. Right? I do. I come to church every Sunday because I need something. And what is that? I need to feed on Christ. That was the command from Christ. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. It was an illustration that that we are sustained. We live our life. All of our life is on Jesus Christ. So the doctrine of total depravity is this, is that every part of you, every part of you, your, your body, your soul, your spirit, every single part of you has been completely corrupted by sin. Every single part of you. That means, when he says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, you're blind, you're deaf, you're dumb. All of those illustrations is to help you understand that blind people cannot see, deaf people cannot hear, dead people cannot do anything. And it's the power of the Spirit that comes and works within us. Now, there's, that is before Christ, and they're like, yeah, John, I understand that, I get that. that. That's before I was a believer, now I'm a believer, now the Spirit lives within me, right? Right? Yes, the spirit does live within you, but here's the problem. And this is what was super helpful from Martin Luther when he clarified that when you become a believer, it's not as if you're no longer under the effects of sin. And so he brought about a a phrase called saint and sinner simultaneously at the same time. So not only are you empowered by the spirit, the spirit has regenerated you. You can actually produce fruit because the spirit produces in you. To this day, and I know I've said this before, I'm going to say it again because I think it's funny. Someone comes. Have you ever met a fruit checker? Someone who's constantly they're, they're examining your life, going to make sure that you are obeying God or that you're truly are a believer. They're going to start checking your fruit. And I just stop on and say, "Hey, look, I just I want to clarify. What fruit are we talking about? Are we talking about your fruit or the fruit of the Spirit? Because it is called fruit of the Spirit, not fruit of John." Right? So, if it's the fruit of the Spirit, that means it's the work of the Spirit, and it has to be the work of the Spirit that we rest on and not our own. What Luther recovered for us is that, yes, we are saved, sanctified, we, we, are, we are safe and secure, and we actually have the capacity to love God and love each other, whereas we did not before. But guess what remains? You're still fallen. Your body, your mind, are still underneath the curse. Your soul has been liberated. You are now alive, but you're alive in a dead body. And this is why Paul says, we groan for the returning of Christ because what is Christ going to do when he returns? He's going to reunite us, what? With a new body. Our souls that are alive will be in a new, untainted body. Depravity is still gnawing at us. This is Paul when he says in Romans, the things I want to do, Live holy. Reflect Jesus Christ. Love my brothers unconditionally, right? I don't do them. And the things I don't want to do, anger, strife, envy, jealousy, laziness, I'm doing those. What does he say? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? He's saying this as a believer. What does he say? Try harder? Read your Bible more? Pray more? All of those things are good. But his conclusion is this, if praying and reading your Bible and if the preaching of God's word does not conclude in what? Christ, then you're not fixing the problem, excuse me, you're not fixing the problem that you're having. So as we go through this series, I think it was a great transition between John 9 and John 10 because John 9 and John 10 absolutely in full color display just how depraved that we are. Before salvation, going into the church and reading the church letters, how can you not read Corinthians and think to myself, I think to yourself yeah i 'm pretty sure depravity still remains because these people are just go read Corinthians, they are messed up they 're sleeping with each other they 're cheating they 're lying they 're stealing, people are dying because they 're just being horrible, and Paul comes in and goes. I want to make nothing known among you except for Christ and whom crucified. Why? Because they have lost the focus of the depravity that they're in and the need that they have. Okay? So as a church and we focus in our attention going into the series, it will be from the standpoint that we have the power of the Spirit in us to actually love and to do the things that are required, but our greatest need is to be reminded of where that power comes from and our standing with God, and we rest in our standing in our position with Jesus Christ, and it's from that resting position we now love and care for each other and care for the community. Amen. Well, the greatest moment every week is that moment where we get to feed on Christ. So, men, let's get ready. And I mentioned this way back when we were in chapter 6 with John. But when you take the bread and when you take the juice, this is what I, I, I want you to remind yourself of. It is a physical picture of a spiritual reality. The moment that you eat... It is that spiritual moment where you're saying, without Christ, without feeding on Christ, without receiving Christ, I cannot be sustained. I, I have nothing. And without Christ's sacrifice, the blood that which He shed for me, I have no standing before Him. Now, if you do not take the Lord's table, it doesn't mean that that goes away. But you know what does go away for us who are still depraved? The hope. We so easily shift our hope from the finished work of Jesus Christ to our own obedience. Listen, we're going to learn why obedience is important and how it functions within the church, but you cannot put your faith in you and your obedience. This is why every week, symbolically, we feast on Jesus Christ to remind us that it's Jesus that feeds us, Jesus that sustains us, and Jesus that saves us. So this is a wonderful symbol, a wonderful symbol that we partake in every week. Father, we thank you that the Spirit really does his work and just how foolish we are. He can come in and just remind us just how powerful the gospel truly is. In Jesus' name, amen.